On this episode of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast, we break down the Terps week that included two losses in three games to Ohio State and another midweek win over VCU. Then we sit down with Terps sophomore catcher Justin Vogt to have a conversation about his new leadership role as a captain on this team and his journey to Maryland so far. Then we're joined by Matthew Knob of the Daily Collegian, who will break down this weekend series between the Terps and the Penn State Nittany Lions. Here we go. This is the Maryland Baseball Network Podcast. Here's your host, Connor Newcomb. Welcome in to episode number 66 of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. I'm your host, Connor Newcomb, joined as always by Zach Solon. And Zach, last week we talked about how well the Terps were playing, especially on the road in the Big Ten. This Terps team had taken back-to-back road series for the first time since 2006, two out of three at Illinois and two out of three at Northwestern. And we're coming back home to face an Ohio State team that was coming off a big series win against Michigan, but hadn't been one of the better teams in the Big Ten this season. And we thought it would be a good series for the Terps to get back on track at home, take a series, thought maybe a sweep, but you were thinking, try to take two out of three again, and you go forward in the conference slate. But of course, that wasn't what happened for the Terps, who lost two of three. And after a midweek win today, as we record this on Tuesday, however, are under 500 at 20 and 21 and sit six and six in the Big Ten. Exactly, Connor. It was really going to be a weekend for the Terps where they had a chance to really pull ahead in those Big Ten standings. Like you said, Ohio State had been struggling before they got to the Michigan series. They had some momentum, but they were back on the road in College Park. Now, Maryland has really struggled at home this year, but then you have the three-game series set, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, but the weather Friday called that game, moved it to Saturday for a doubleheader third week in a row that Maryland had to play a doubleheader. They had split the previous two. So now this was a chance for them to take two games on Saturday and take the series right away. And game one, they got to it right away. Yeah, the Terps, as you said, no stranger to the doubleheader on the weekends. Third straight and fourth time of the season. And they had Hunter Parsons heading to the mound. And after he gave up seven runs in seven innings last week against Northwestern, you kind of felt like he'd be due for a bounce back start. But as you said, even before he could get to the mound, Terps got some runners on base in the first inning and a couple of runners scored on wild pitches. A.J. Lee and Taylor Wright both coming in to score to make it a two to one Maryland lead. And that was after Hunter Parsons had put up a scoreless top of the first. So you feel like, all right, this is settling in nicely for Maryland. He's got a scoreless inning already. Terps have him two runs, and you feel like that might be enough for a usual Hunter Parsons start as he bears down. Now, he did give up a solo homer in the second, but the Terps responded with a Bednar RBI double in the bottom half of the inning to make it 3-1, to one, heading to the third. you got to feel like that's enough for Parsons. But then in that third inning, things just kind of got away from Hunter, as they did in the fourth inning last week against Northwestern where Ohio State was just able to string hits together against him. And again, he just didn't look quite like the Hunter Parsons we know. Exactly, Connor. It started off, he gave up one, two, three, four straight base hits. 
and then an infield fly, and then another two RBI double to Dylan Dingler, and that gave Ohio State a five spot in the third inning. And that was kind of where Hunter Parsons, he did bounce back after it, but like I've said in previous weeks, we've kind of noticed from Hunter Parsons, he might start off pretty good. He'll have one bad inning, usually between the first or, or about the fourth, and then he'll come back after that and be able to get there. Now, allowing four straight hits there, and then and then five runs in that inning was getting his pitch count pretty high, so he only went six in this game, but that was a tough inning for him. He gave he started the inning giving up a single to Nick Irwin, then another single to Dominic Canzone, who is a Big Ten, the Big Ten leader in batting average. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later. And then Kobe Foppy, another single. That gives him an RBI. Brady Cherry, an RBI single. And then two hitters later, Dylan Dingler, a two-RBI double. And that is kind of where... It kind of got a little scary for the Terps looking at Hunter Parsons. And then DeZenzo's RBI single made it 6-1 to one in that third inning, and you kind of felt like it was happening again. Now, the difference between the two weeks that the Terps have already put out a big amount of runs last week against Northwestern in Game 1, they had only had three on the board this week and trailed 6-3, to three, but the Terps, they didn't score in the third. But then Hunter Parsons did what he did last week, came back out after the beginning, started putting up zeros. He puts up a zero in the fourth and lets his team stay in the game. Then in the bottom of the fourth, the Randy Bednar RBI triple made it a 6-5 game. It scored two runs, a two-RBI triple, excuse me. Lee and Panero scored, and then Taylor Wright's RBI single tied the game at six. Parsons comes out, puts up another zero in the fifth, and then in the bottom of the fifth, a Justin Vogt RBI single gave the Terps the lead. Michael Panero with an RBI on a sack bunt made it 8-6. to six. And that was the big thing about Parsons. He was able to come back out there, get the shutdown innings. Now, he came back out in the sixth. He gave up another solo home run to DeZenzo. But he left the game six innings, allowed the seven runs. And we said on last week's podcast, I said it. I don't think you're <laughs> going to have Hunter Parsons give up seven runs in another start. He did it again, but... He was able to get deep into the game and get it to the Terps' better relievers. Exactly. Maryland's offense in this game looked really good. They gave Hunter Parsons the support that he needed, much like they did in the Northwestern game uh, last week on the Friday start. But then coming this, this is a Saturday, game one of the doubleheader. Then you come in, you wonder who the Terps are going to go to. They go to Sean Fisher, who looked really good last weekend against Northwestern, and he comes out and pitches three dominant innings against the Buckeyes and just a great performance from Fisher getting him his first career save. He sends the Buckeyes down scoreless in the seventh and the eighth. He gives up one more in the ninth, but wasn't enough to get them out of the game as the Terps were up 14-7 to at that time and ended up winning 14-8. to Yeah, the Terps offense kept it going as Parsons left. It was only an 8-7 lead for Maryland, but in the bottom of the sixth, Josh McGuire, an RBI single, made it 9-7. to Then you go to the seventh inning after Fisher's first scoreless, an A.J. Lee RBI single made it 10-7. A Taylor Wright RBI double made it 11-7. Then Maxwell Costas puts the cherry on top with a three-run shot to center, making it a 14-7 game. As you said, Ohio State got a run in the ninth off of Sean Fisher. But the Terps closed it out, a 14-8 Game 1 victory. It felt a lot like the Terps' three crazy games last weekend. They win another crazy high-scoring affair. You win the first one. They wait about 40 minutes, and they come right back out for Game number 2 with a chance to win a series on one day, on the first day you play. Zach Thompson heading to the mound for Maryland. And again for the second straight week, Zach Thompson got hit around early. He gave up two solo homers in the first inning of that second game. Canzone and Cherry each hitting solo shots to make it a 2-0 game. But then he was able to settle down 
and the Terps ended up with a big inning. In the bottom of the second, Terps put up five runs. They put up two more in the third, and Thompson settled through that start after the rough start, and he showed some big middle innings on the mound, but it was the Terps' offense exploding in the second and third innings. Exactly, Connor. That offense really did it. They put up another five spot this time in the second inning. Started off pretty slow. Caleb Wall struck out, but then Tommy Gardner reached with a single. Michael Pinero also with a single, and A.J. Lee, an RBI double. Taylor Wright, a two-RBI double. And Maxwell Costas, a two-run home run. His second of the day, first one of this game. And he actually gives them the team lead, and, and that was just where you thought the Terps are finally giving Zach Thompson some run support. He came out in the second, shut him down, came out in the third, shut him down. And things got pretty interesting from there. Yeah, and the, as you said, five runs in the second. Terps took a 5-2 to two lead. Thompson put up the zero. Terps got two more in the third. A.J. Lee, an RBI single, and then on a wild pitch, Caleb Walls came in to score to make it 7-2. to two. Thompson did give up a run in the top of the fourth. That made it a 7-3 to three ball game. And then Thompson would eventually give up one more run in the sixth. Terps got a run in the fifth on a Caleb Walls homer. Thompson gave up a run in the sixth. But Zach Thompson leaves the game eventually after a scoreless seventh. He goes seven innings in his start. Gives up four runs on seven hits, six strikeouts to one walk. And he was pretty solid settling down. And when he left the ball game, the Terps had an 8-4 to four lead through seven innings. And you have to feel like you're in a good spot there. Now you have John Murphy, who didn't pitch in game one. He's ready to go and has showed he can get six outs. But the Terps don't go to John Murphy with the 8-4 to four lead heading into the top of the eighth inning. Instead, it's Elliot Zollner, who had been dealing with a finger injury and missed a couple weeks. His first appearance back is in kind of a big spot, and it didn't go well for the Fuzz in that one. It looked good at first. He got a ground out, got um, Connor Pohl to ground out. He was the Ohio State cleanup hitter. Then gave up a walk and then a two-run home run to Brent Totis. And just like that, it's 8-6. You're not worried yet. Zollner stays in the game, but then walks Zach DeZenzo. And it's looking pretty scary from there. So then pinch hitter comes up and Scotty Seymour and the Terps, well, before he got there, changed their pitcher. Yeah, they go to Andrew Vale out of the pen, who's been very good this season, ERA right around one, in an 8-6 game with a runner on first and one away in the eighth inning. And Vale allows a single to put runners on the corners. And then he got an interesting sacrifice fly off the bat of Irwin. It was kind of a liner to the center. Caleb Balls made a pretty nice sliding catch and made the catch. The runner from third tagged up, came in to score to make it 8-7 for the second out. But the Terps threw the ball into third base. Taylor Wright stepped on the bag, and Maryland thought the runner had left early from third base. They were pretty sure that he had left early. The umpires didn't agree, so the inning continued. But you still have Andrew Vale out there. You still have a runner on first. You're up by one with two outs. You're figuring Vale can get you one more out before you give it to Murphy. But Vale not able to do that. A can zone double down the line, scored Jones and tied the game at eight. And looking back on that game, finally John Murphy comes in after that RBI double, after the game had been tied up, and he gets a ground out to end the inning and keep it eight to eight. But they brought in Murphy to get the final out of the eighth. You have to think the Terps maybe should have gone to Murphy a little earlier. Exactly. Once Zollner kind of got into trouble, it was an 8-6 game. That's when you start to think, okay, should we just give it up to Murphy now? Because like you said, Murphy didn't pitch in game one. He hadn't pitched all week. He probably could have gone for the two-inning, six-out save there. But they decided to give Zollner a chance coming back from injury. It was 8-6. And then Vale comes in, and then by the time he's out, it's tied at 8. The Terps don't go to John Murphy. And then the bottom of the eighth inning, though, the rally starts again. Panero and Lee back-to-back -back singles. 
after a Bednar strikeout and a wild pitch. Those runners on second and third with one away. And Taylor Wright, just a little soft grounder towards first base, but it got the job done, scores the run. The Terps had a chance to get more runs, but Costas and McGuire struck out, but they had the 9-8 to lead. You have your closer, Murphy, already in the game, and you're feeling good about that, but Ohio State rallied. Murphy got a strikeout to start the ninth, then a pull single and an error allowed him to reach second base. Then after a flyout, Totus with an RBI single past a diving A.J. Lee tied the game at nine. It was just a deflating feeling for the Terps, who had an 8-4 to four lead in the eighth, knowing they were going to have to walk it off if they wanted to win this game. And Maryland, the way their offense had been going all day, game one, 20 hits, most they've had in a game in years. And then game two, they score another eight runs. They thought that would be enough, but it wasn't as the game was tied, and then they had to come back in the ninth, and they ended up going down in order in the ninth, and we went to extra innings, and that's you know where you had to rely on John Murphy to go even further in, in a much bigger situation than he would have come in if he came in, in the eighth. Yeah, as you said, Terps went down quietly, in that ninth inning, and it was really John Murphy versus Andrew Magno out there, and that was pretty much the best reliever for each team, Magno and Murphy. Murphy more of a traditional closer. Magno's worked in some different scenarios, but he leads the team in saves this season with four, or excuse me, with three, and he's pretty much been the best reliever. So you had each guy's best guy on the mound, and it was basically who was going to crack first. And in the 10th inning, both relievers again had good innings. Murphy walked the first two batters, then struck out the side to keep it at 10-10. to And the Terps had a chance to win the game in the 10th and just another missed opportunity for Maryland. Panera led it off with a single after an A.J. Lee strikeout. Bednar singles, then a passed ball puts runners on second and third. They intentionally walk Taylor Wright. You get Maxwell Costas to the plate, bases loaded, one out in a tie game with a chance to walk it off, and Costas strikes out. He's had such a good season, you don't want to put anything on him for striking out there, as he's obviously had so many big hits, but you had to feel good if you're the Terps with him at the plate. Then Josh McGuire comes up with two outs. He strikes out as well, and Murphy ends up giving up the home run in the top of the 11th, and the Terps fall but you really have to go back to two innings in this game. The eighth inning where Murphy didn't pitch and the Terps gave up a four-run lead, and then the bottom of the tenth when they loaded the bases and had a good chance to walk it off. So I want to start with that top of the eighth inning. You go there, and you got Zach Thompson at 105 pitches after the seventh. And I talked to Corey Muscara before Sunday's game, after Zach Thompson's start, and Muscara said that he was kind of frustrated. He said it was one of those decisions that he stayed up tossing and turning after the night, deciding not to put Thompson out there for the eighth inning because after giving up a couple runs in the first and then one more in the fourth, one more in the sixth, worked a one, two, three, seventh for his last one. He was really feeling it. You could tell he kind of wanted to go back out there, but they decided to go to their bullpen for the eighth and not going to John Murphy, going to Zoner there is what really ended up making the difference. Zoner struggles, Vale struggles, and by the time they get to Murphy, it was essentially too late. Yeah, and then in that 11th inning, of course, after the Terps leave him loaded in the 10th, a Totus two-out homer, I think, was really the killer on that one. Murphy got a strikeout, a soft ground out, and then on an 0-2 pitch to Totus, he allows a home run to left field. He was one strike away from another scoreless inning, and that really hurt in that one. You go to the bottom of the 11th, and Magno locked it in, struck out the Terps, struck out the side, all on 3-2 pitches. And the Terps went down looking twice. They worked counts, just couldn't get on base, and fell 10-9. to It was a very deflating loss that tied the series at one. And you felt like the Terps really needed that one so they could just go into Sunday looking at it like something they haven't had pretty much all season. 
because they can't win Zach Thompson starts. Only once this year have the Terps won the first two games of a series. That was against Maine, the only sweep of the year for the Terps. And you felt like they really needed that to go into Sunday finally with a series win already playing for a sweep. But instead, the Sunday game ends up being for the series. Again, it's Trevor Labonte on the hill. And after he works out of a jam in the first inning of that game, he gives up a home run in the second inning and a three-run homer in the third inning, and it was the same culprit each time. For Both Ohio to State. Ridge Winan, who really wasn't that much of a power hitter for this Ohio State team, but he kind of got Labonte twice, both times for right center field, and was just really reading his pitch as well. And unfortunately for the Terps, they weren't able to get their offense going as early as they were in the previous two games of this series, and that also is kind of what ended up being the difference maker because by the end of the third, it was a 4-1 to uh, four to one lead for Ohio State, and you think the Terps can still come back, but the Terps were jumping on a lot of early pitches too, and Ohio State's Griffin Smith, their starting pitcher, was really, really good, kind of had a career start that day. Griffin Smith was great, and you think back to game one of the series, Terps, as you said, had the 14 runs on 20 hits, first 20 hit game since 2012 against Duke. So it was a great offensive output for the Terps. And again, they lose the game in game two, but they put up nine runs, and usually nine runs is enough to win. But Sunday, the offense, which had really been there for, I guess, the past five or six Big Ten games, really. If you go all the way back to the final game of the Illinois series, the Terps put up eight, then 32 runs in three games against Northwestern, and they put up 23 runs in the two games of the doubleheader against Ohio State. The offense was feeling good. All they got was in the third inning an A.J. Lee sack bunt and an RBI scored Ben Cowles. It made it a 4-1 to one game in that third inning. And really that was it for the Terps offensively. Ohio State would get one more run on a can zone RBI double. Trevor Labonte, again, a solid start. Six innings, four runs on eight hits, four Ks, three walks. Mark DeLuya was very good out of the bullpen. He worked three innings, gave up just one run. It was unearned. That run scored in the eighth inning. But as you said, Griffin Smith, phenomenal. A complete game against the Terps. He gives up just one run on four hits, strikes out ten, walks two and hits two, and just mows down the Terps lineup and really got into a groove at the end of the game to finish that one off. A 5-1 victory for Ohio State as the Buckeyes take two of three in the series. Both teams now 6-6 six and six in the Big Ten, and now, of course, the, Terps have the, t- or the Buckeyes have the tiebreaker winning two of three. But after that loss Saturday, it was such just a deflating game Sunday and a deflating series home loss. It was really tough for the Terps, who came in with their heads high this weekend. They've won two straight Big Ten series. They were trying to get their third for the first time since 2003, and and they just couldn't get it done. And they had all the pieces there. I think that's what hurts them most, is that Parsons gave up seven runs, but they got his back. They had 20 hits. They scored 14 runs. They dominated the Buckeyes. And then they had Zach Thompson's back for most of the way, too. And then given the end result after the bullpen came in and, and kind of gave the game away, not gave the game away, but, you know, blow the lead, blew the lead. And then uh, John Murphy thrill, throws just one bad pitch on the 0-2 to Brent Totis. And that's what ends up being the difference maker pretty much on the weekend because the Terps just really didn't have it on Sunday. So Ohio State takes two of three in the series. Again, the Terps fell to 19-21, and 6-6 six and six in the Big Ten. But the Terps... They have a midweek game this week, just one midweek after back-to-back double midweeks, and we are coming to you recording this just after that game ended. The Terps with a 10-5 victory at home over VCU, so the Terps going into the Penn State series will officially be 20-21, and 6-6 in the Big Ten. And the Terps complete the season sweep, a three-game sweep of VCU, beat the Rams in that Coastal Series to start the season in the Sunday game, then a couple weeks later went to Richmond, beat VCU in a 4-3 to game where the Terps used nine pitchers in that <laughs> one. 
and then they beat VCU 10-5 to in this one. And after some pretty disappointing midweeks the last couple of weeks, Terps get a big home midweek win against essentially the best midweek team besides West Virginia that they'll play this season. VCU team that's now 28-13, three of their 13 losses coming to Maryland. And in today's game against VCU, each team got a run in the first inning. It was a Brett Norwood home run to start the game and then Maxwell Costas, an RBI single in the bottom of the first, tied things up. But the Terps ended up with four runs in the second inning. Ben Irvine, his first Terps RBI with an RBI ground out, then a Bednar, two RBI single, and a Taylor Wright RBI double. VCU got three in the third off of Daniel O'Connor to make it 5-4, to four, but Sean Fisher came in to stop the bleeding, went two and two-thirds scoreless, and the Terps kept up the offense. Three runs in the fourth inning, an A.J. Lee solo homer, and then a Josh McGuire two-run single. Ben Cowes hit a homer in the fifth inning, and then after a run in the seventh for VCU, A.J. Lee with an RBI single in the bottom of the seventh, and it was 10-5, to five, and it's a good offensive output. Ten runs for the Terps on 17 hits. They get a big midweek win. They get one game closer back to 500. But the big story for the Terps, Tyler Blome, the junior left-hander who had not started since that first VCU game all the way back in February, the first weekend of the season in Coastal Carolina, comes back from injury, gets the start, gives up the home run to the first battery faces in Norwood, but settles down, gets three strikeouts over two innings, allowing just the one run. And it is such a good just such a good thing for this Terps team, Zach, to have blown back. Exactly, and he looked good too, Connor. He's kind of their go-to guy, 2017 Big Ten Freshman of the Year, and if he's going to be here in his sophomore and junior years, he's the kind of guy you want to have on the mound, especially at this point in the season where the Terps kind of need to put the pedal to the metal soon if they want to get back into the Big Ten tournament and even make themselves an at-large for the NCAA Regionals. So Blome is the kind of guy you want to have out there. And He was at a pitch count limit in this game against VCU, but he made the most of it and looked really good doing it. Gave up a leadoff home run, but shut down after that. Yeah, and Tyler Blome, obviously huge for him to be back. It looks like he's going to travel with the Terps to Penn State this weekend, so maybe available out of the bullpen for Maryland. So that's huge for him. And now, Zach, I want you to pick a Terp of the week. And I got to say, I don't want to make your pick for you, but a certain Terp shortstop hit over 500, and I feel like that might be your pick this week. <laughs> I'll go with A.J. Lee. Uh, what a week for him. So the Saturday game where the Terps had 20 hits, 12 of those came from the first three hitters in their lineup, Lee, Bednar, and Wright. They just absolutely had everything working for them this week. And then A.J. Lee continued that into the midweek against VCU. But A.J. Lee on the weekend, like you said, hits over 500. And then in game one, he goes... Four for six in game two against the Buckeyes, even though it was a loss. He added a couple of more hits, three to be exact. And then even on Sunday, he continues that hitting. Starts off the first inning with a single, and then that was it for him that day. And then against VCU, gets his third home run of the year, and then another single. So he's just piling on those hits. And that's exactly who the guy, who the Terps need in their leadoff spot. He now leads the team in batting average. Who would have said? Who would have thunk it? But doing an excellent job, AJ Lee. Yeah, and the Terps... Closing in on having three guys hitting over 300, Taylor Wright, Randy Bednar, A.J. Lee, the top three in the lineup. Pretty close to that 300 line, which would be good, obviously, for the Terps offense, as it has heated up over the past couple of weeks. My Terp of the week, again, some guys had some good offensive weekends this weekend, but I want to talk about him a little bit more. I'm going to give it to Tyler Blom as my Terp of the week. I think it's just so good for him and so good for this Terps team to have him back on the mound. Obviously, he started that game against VCU the first Sunday of the year, went two and a third, 
and just was not the same Tyler Bloom. He was solid. The Terps ended up winning the game, but only went two and a third. The fastball velocity was around 84, 85 to start the game. It had fallen to about 78 by the end of that second and beginning of that third inning when he pitched. 78 miles an hour on the fastball. He was just out with some with some arm issues. They weren't quite sure what was going on with him, but he just didn't have his same stuff that obviously gave him Big Ten Freshman of the Year in 2017, and he was the Terps Saturday starter in 2018 until he missed some time down the stretch with some injury issue that obviously fell into this year as well. But to have him back was huge, and to sit there with our managers, Micah Salzberg and Nick Peltz, and look at the velocities, he was consistently at 88 and 89 miles an hour on the fastball, hit 90 and hit 91 a few times with the fastball, such a huge difference from 78. All three strikeouts came with that hammer curveball, the 12-6 pitch, which has been his best pitch his entire career at Maryland. And who knows if how much stronger he'll get, if he'll be able to be a weekend guy for the Terps down the stretch, what he'll be. But this Terps team just is much better with Tyler Blome as an option for the Terps. And that's why he's my Terp of the Week. It's just big for this team to have him traveling to Penn State to be able to use him at all is going to be huge for the Terps this weekend in Penn State. And the guy who got to catch Tyler Blome uh, on Tuesday against VCU was Terp sophomore catcher Justin Vogt, a sophomore captain on this team. And maybe the bat, the batting average hasn't come around quite this year. He's hitting right around the Mendoza line at the moment, but he's flashed the power this year. The defense has gotten better, and he's really become a leader despite being a sophomore on this Terps team. And I had a chance to sit down with him this week as our guest here on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast to talk about being a captain as a sophomore and being a leader and taking over a leadership role in this team. And then his hitting as well, his defense, and just his relationship with the pitchers and with pitching coach Corey Muscara and how that relationship all works out for the Terps. So here is my conversation with Terps sophomore captain and catcher, Justin Vogt. And here's the 1-1 pitch. Hit in the air, left center field. Going back is Hannafin, and that one is gone. A game-tying three-run home run for Justin Vogt. And this one is tied at three. 1 out of camp, here's the squeeze, he gets it down, Vote picks it up, applies the tag, he is out! What a play by Vote! He picked it up with his bare hand, turned around, applied the tag, and Wyndham is out! That's one of the best plays I've ever seen from a catcher. We welcome in Terps sophomore catcher Justin Vote to the podcast this week. Justin, thanks so much for joining us as for the second straight week we report this record this pod on the bus. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I want to get to how you got to Maryland, your journey so far here, but first I want to start with this season as you obviously came in opening day, really came into the fall, somewhat knowing you're going to be the starting catcher for this team, and you got a lot of time near the end of last season, of course, playing alongside senior Justin Morris, who got a lot of innings behind the plate as well, but Coming into this sophomore season, do you feel you were ready to take over these catching duties this year? Yeah, I think for sure. Uh, you know, last year I kind of got hurt to start off the season and then uh, got to sit behind JMO and learn a lot from him. Uh, and towards the end of the season, you know, started playing more, went into summer ball, uh, caught a lot. <coughs> uh, so I think for sure, I think I was ready to come in and take over and be the guy every day behind the plate. So 
but having JMO uh, here last year definitely helped me. Uh, you know, he showed me the ropes, got to learn a lot from him. So having him as a mentor last year was definitely a huge step for me. And not something you see a lot, but you're a captain as a sophomore. Now, what kind of went into that, and what kind of honor was that for you to be a captain of this team just as in your second year? Yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, that's all that's coming from the guys. Uh, you know, we took a vote in the fall uh, after we did all the all the scrimmages and fall competitions and stuff, and uh, you know they they voted me uh, team captain. And as a sophomore, I wasn't really expecting to be uh, expecting to be the captain, but um, you know I get to deal with a lot of the hitters, and then I get to deal with obviously the whole pitching staff. So I think that definitely had a, a big impact, and uh, you know I kind of got some votes from both sides, I guess you could say. But uh, that, that definitely for sure a huge honor for me. You know, being a young guy, getting to be a captain of this team is a, a pleasure for sure. And obviously you're somewhat of the general out there giving signs behind the dish. But other than that, just the natural leadership that any catcher brings. Have you felt yourself developing any more leadership qualities maybe off the field as well? Yeah, it's it's tough, man. Uh, you know, I'm still a young guy myself, so just trying to learn from, uh, you know, A.J. and Murph and, uh, you know, Hunter and T. Wright, the older guys, they've kind of been around the block a little bit. So uh, it's definitely been a, a feeling out process this year in terms of developing my leadership skills and, that's something I, I take a lot of pride in. You know, I try to improve in that every single day. Uh, but being a young guy, you know, it's it's difficult. You know, uh, you know not, not that I don't have the respect of the guys because obviously they voted for me to be a captain, but uh, it's definitely still a, a process in the making. Uh, I think I'm doing an okay job. It definitely can improve in a lot of areas still, but it's been a fun year so far. So, And now I want to take it, take it back to high school in Pennsylvania. Something that I ask a lot of guys, and it's a lot of interesting stories, you know, how did you end up becoming a Terp? What were your offers like, your recruiting process like that ended you here? Yeah, so it's mine was pretty quick. Uh, I wasn't really a big travel circuit guy. Like a lot of these guys talk about playing travel ball from the time they were 12. Uh, you know, I played a lot of Legion growing up with the guys from my, from my local town. Uh, I played for U.S. Elite for a summer. Uh, kind of tried out one day in a rainy day in uh, Altoona. Uh, Mark Helsel gave me a chance, kind of an individual tryout one day, and <laughs> kind of just went from there. I uh, really didn't have much uh, until uh, my sophomore summer. Um, went to a tournament at the University of Virginia. I think Coach Sheff and Coach Vaughn were there. Uh, I, I hit, I think, like three or four homers. Had a pretty good tournament. Uh, we ended up winning the whole thing and <clears throat> kind of just took off from there. Went down to... Uh, to Georgia after that, kind of visited some schools on the way down, came back up, my whole family, we visited here, and, uh, you know, kind of just fell in love with it. They, they say, you know, as soon as you step on campus at a place, you're going to know where you want to be, and that was the case for me, uh, you know, when I came to Maryland. Kind of close to home, not too far, only like four hours from, from where I grew up, so, uh, you know, had the chance to get a great education, play high-level Division One baseball, and it's not too far from home. It was the perfect combination for me. And you said kind of stepping on campus did it for you. When in your process, like when, when in high school did you finally make that decision, I'm going to be a Terp, and, you know, how much did the recruiting of obviously John Sheff, who's no longer here, but Rob Vaughn as well, and, and, and the coaches trying to, get in, trying to get you here as well help in that decision? Yeah, it was, it was, it was a lot of fun. Uh, I committed, I think, end of July after my sophomore year of high school so I mean now I guess that's considered kind of late with these freshmen and eighth graders that are committing to schools but at that point it was kind of early and, and uh, you know for me it happened so fast uh, like I said it was kind of a over like a month span where you know I kind of got a couple offers and had to make the decision um, but you know as soon as I met with all the coaches here uh, saw the campus 
it kind of just felt like home right off the bat. You know, we came came on campus, talked to Coach Vaughn a couple of times on the phone. Funny thing, at at the time I was getting recruited, the guy from uh, from US Elite, Mark Helsel, he's kind of like, he told me he's like, yeah, you know, we've got the kid ahead of you that's playing for US Elite, who was Ty Friedrich, who was coming here. He's like, you probably really shouldn't consider going to Maryland, and then here we are today, uh, committed committed like two months after he gave me that talk. So just funny how things work out. And I've I've heard from some of the guys that uh, obviously Ty transferring from Maryland, but he will be here this weekend, I believe, yeah. to watch some of these games. I think so. so. You're good to see him, but uh, so you come into Maryland your freshman year, and obviously the Terps coming off of an NCAA regional appearance, and for a lot of guys and for the team overall, you could say it was a disappointing season last year in 2018. And in your freshman year, you know you got on the field some, and you got some starts even on the weekends. By the end of the year, it seemed like you and Justin Morris were almost splitting those catching duties. But coming in and and knowing, okay, I'm behind a senior who's been through a lot with this program but really knowing there's going to be an opening. You know, how did you approach that? How much did you learn from JMO last year, and how did that transpire into your kind of <laughs> in and out of the lineup freshman year? Yeah, I mean, obviously everybody coming into uh, college wants to contribute as a freshman, and that was tough for me because, you know, uh, you know, I was like everyone's the, the dude on their high school team. You know, you're hitting three and four in the lineup. You know, you're getting pitched around. So it was a little bit of an adjustment, not only for me, but for all the freshmen. Uh, but, you know, having J-Mo, who, like you said, was a key contributor to, to some of the most successful teams of this program's history was was big for me. You know, like I said, I got to learn a lot from him, not only uh, just from the baseball field, but he was a pretty big mentor for me off the field, too. You know, kind of showed me uh, the ways of just school, too. You know, how to handle yourself off the field. Uh, you know, you have a bad day at the field, not taking that and being a being a bad a bad friend or a bad boyfriend and all that kind of stuff off the field so in terms of that it was pretty big for me to just learn how to you know hand, take care of my stuff at the baseball field but also uh you know keeping to staying to be a good student being a good person off the field too and you know your playing time last year it, it increased as the season went on and it, it never seemed like the bat maybe got hot for you last year you flashed the power had a few homers but there were a lot of strikeouts the average was down so by the end of the season, when you knew every week, I'm going to get at least one, maybe two starts behind the plate this weekend. How did you, because I know you had to be frustrated at the plate some, how did you separate that frustration at the plate with, I still got to go back there and catch a good game for my team as yeah, well? Yeah, for sure. That's something that, uh, you know, like you said, J-Mo and, not, and the coaching staff too has kind of helped me even this year still. Um, but especially last year, you know, uh, everybody wants to hit. You know, that's what shows up in the box where that's the sexy stats. Everybody wants to go out and hit homers and doubles and have a good average. But, you know, being a catcher, I'm going to make my money behind the plate. I mean, if with a team with no good catcher, they're, they're not going to be good. Uh, you know, I even Kevin Martier, who was around us a lot last year, he uh, he was a big help for me, you know, uh, learning to take care of your business behind the plate. Because even, even if, you know, I don't go out and go two for four with a homer and a double, you know, I can still affect the game in a variety of ways behind the plate. Um, and now with all these sabermetrics that are coming out and stuff, nowadays you see how big of an impact a catcher can actually have uh, defensively receiving, blocking, all those, kind of, all those kind of stats. There's actually teams that are valuing that stuff more than guys hitting. So, um, yeah, obviously, like I said, I want to hit. And, that, and it sucked last year, you know, striking out a lot. Uh, I kind of got hurt to start the season, banged my thumb up a little bit, uh, and that kind of set me back. Um, so, you know, it, coming back, I think it was like a couple of weeks or a month I missed. I had to kind of find my groove a little bit. Not playing every day, it was tough. Uh, so you kind of have to find your groove in the midweek or in, or in practice, and that was hard. Um, and then, you know, I kind of let the struggles uh, snowball. And, uh, I was in a pretty bad place mentally. Um, but, 
went to summer ball, kind of figured some stuff out, and I, I feel a lot better. Um, I think last year was definitely good for me at the end of the day. And now you come into this season, and six home runs so far, you flash the power. The average is up a bit, uh, I believe right around 210 at the moment. And I know you'd probably like to get more hits, but you're producing more at the plate this year for the Terps and seemingly catching a better game, it looks like, every single time you go out there defensively. So now how do you balance it this year? Because it's even a little different this year, where last year, you know, maybe you'd have an 0 for 3 and you'd catch a game, but you'd didn't know that all 27 innings I'm going to catch this weekend. Terps have a midweek and three three games in the weekend. You pretty much know right now you're going to catch 36-plus innings yeah. over a week. So how does that change things, knowing that, you know, whatever even happens at the plate, I'm going to be back there for every single pitch? Yeah, I think for sure. You know, showing up to the park every day, knowing you're going to get four or five at-bats is definitely a good feeling. Um, it's tough on your body, obviously. That's a, a step I had to take this year is just learning how to take care of my body. Uh, in the training room, in the weight room, uh, with Franco and Lobato's help, um, you know we've we've kind of developed a little bit of a plan to make sure my body stays in, in good shape. Um, and, and in terms of uh, offensively this year, uh, like I said, I've kind of just simplified my approach, trying to control what I can control, swing at more strikes. Um, and, and, I, and the numbers aren't as good as you know you wanted to want them to be. Uh, obviously, I started the season I think hitting in like the four hole, um, but. Uh, like I said, I'm just trying to control what I can control, swing at strikes and, and barrel up baseballs. And if I do that, you know what, tip my cap to the, to the pitcher if he makes a good pitch, if I line out to somebody, whatever. Uh, I'm just trying to, like I said, control what I can control and determine my success off of that. And then behind the plate, um, me and Moose have a pretty good relationship. Uh, he kind of lets me call some of the games sometime on my own. So that's something I really take pride in is, uh, is, is calling my own game. Uh, setting up for certain guys in certain spots so we can maximize uh, their potential, get the most strike calls that we can. Um, and it's fun, man. I, I enjoy just being behind the plate and developing a relationship with the umpire and, and getting those borderline strike calls more than anything, uh, especially being a catcher. I think that's something you got to take pride in. So, And I know you love being behind the plate, but how much would you like for the Terps to finally play three games on three separate days this weekend against yeah, Penn State? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, I think if we play a doubleheader this week, it's going to be four weekends it's in gonna a row. It's going to be four in a row. Um, so that's a tough schedule yeah, right there. The, the double headers sure don't make the legs feel too hot, but um, hey, if we're getting W's, it's all I care about. And I want to go back to something you just talked about about your relationship with Moose and, and calling your games. And it's been a little bit interesting because you and Moose both came to this program at the same time, and I'm sure he kind of knew. Last year he had you and J-Mo, but knew going forward, like as I develop my pitchers, Justin Vogt's going to be my guy behind the plate for at least three years here. So, you know, how have you developed that relationship with him? Because although he's the pitching coach, like the catcher is one of the most important guys he's got to work with as well. Yeah, uh, obviously me and him, we're not going to agree on every single uh, decision or, you know, everything in the game. But uh, we're very open and honest with each other, and I think that's a great part of our relationship. I can go and talk to him about anything, whether it's baseball, off the field stuff, school. Um, you know, Coach Vaughn's more of the, the mechanical guy behind the plate. We work on, you know, our individual defense stuff in practice. But when it comes to, uh, you know, setting up for certain guys and sequences and stuff, that all comes from him. And uh, I can almost, I try, when he's calling the game, I try to sit behind the plate and predict what pitch he's going to call. And that's how I know, like, all right, we got the same game plan going on. But my relationship with him is really, really good. And like I said, we're very open and honest with each other. And he's tough on me. He's, uh, he's definitely hard to please, but... Uh, He's, he's the man. I, I love him to death. 
We know a moose mound visit can be interesting. When he comes out there, are you able ever able to get a word in, or is he kind of dominating that conversation? Uh, I usually try to save my words for once he walks away, just in case I say something that uh, he doesn't agree with. But, uh, yeah, they can get pretty heated. It's either he comes out and it's very short, sweet, and to the point, or he's he's staying out there till the umpire comes out and has to kind of push him off the mound. And, and you mentioned Rob Vaughn as well, and with him being a catcher at Kansas State. Does that help just with kind of the trust factor with your head coach, just knowing he's gone through the same thing, he knows what I'm doing back here, having a catcher be your head coach? For sure, for sure. He's, uh, he's been a big help for me, uh, both mechanically and, like I said, having, having him and, uh, and Moose to, you know, kind of bounce some ideas off of. Uh, even Tab's been a big help this year. He's kind of had, you know, he tore his labrums, but he's a very knowledgeable guy. Uh, just being able to bounce some ideas off of, you know, what are set up for certain pitches, what I can do to, you know, get this get this pitch called to strike a little bit more. So having two, three guys that I can really have in my corner and bounce information off of is uh, is huge for me. And, you know, you're a baseball guy here at Maryland, but I know the vote family, it's not just a b- baseball family. you got a lot of hockey players in there sure. as well. So what, what what's your hockey background? How did you balance that with baseball? And kind of what made you eventually choose the baseball route? Yeah, so... Uh, I was I played hockey. I think hockey was the first sport I actually played. To be honest with you, I kind of started when I was like five or six. Played all the way up. I did like the in-house thing in the middle school. Then I only played for my high school team. I wasn't good enough to play travel hockey. My brother Kenny is really really good goalie right now. He just got drafted to the NAHL. So shout out to him. Um, but yeah, we're all hockey players. Uh, you know, we went to the Wilkesboro Scranton Pens games growing up all the time. My, my dad kind of had like like the 15, 20. Uh, game package, so we were always up there. Um, and hockey, honestly, was my first love. Um, if I was good enough, to be honest, I probably would have picked hockey. But unfortunately, I'm not the fleetest of foot. I'm not the best on skates. But I definitely enjoyed it growing up. Uh, and, and a lot of my buddies from uh, from high school on the baseball team played uh, played uh, hockey too. So uh, one of my best friends is a catcher at St. John's. He played hockey with us too. One of my other good buddies is a tight end at Albany right now for football. So we all played. Uh, played hockey together so we'd go from workouts and practice and stuff right to the rink so that 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 was definitely a fun experience growing up and it was good definitely a good balance I played some basketball too I didn't become a full-time catcher until I was like a senior in high school I was an outfielder uh, for most of my high school baseball career so definitely having the the multiple sports uh, I think it definitely made me a better athlete and then uh, you know once I got to specialize in baseball obviously all my focus is here now but I think that's a problem with a lot of people now is they're focusing on one sport too early uh, um, I know a lot of kids from back home that are, you know, it's baseball from the time you're nine, ten years old. If I if I had that, if I didn't have the chance to play multiple sports, I don't think I'd be the person I am today, for sure. How much does the hockey background help you, well, first of all, when you transition to catching in high school and catching now? Because we've seen you take a beating a couple of times back there <laughs> this season. Yeah, I think for sure. Uh, you know, I think hockey players are some of the toughest guys in the world, though. And I was a defenseman. You know, my job wasn't to go out there and score 30 goals a season. I was my my sole goal was just to not let them score. And my brother was the goalie too behind me in high school. So anybody that got in the crease, I made sure they uh, they got a good uh, they got a good piece of me. I did not like people coming into the crease. And I was that was my that was my game. I was a I was a big physical guy. I, I didn't like to take a lot of crap from people. So. Um, I got my couple goals here and there, and I celebrated them, but uh, my game was definitely not pre- preventing the other team from scoring. And you said your brother just recently drafted in the NAHL draft. So with you two you know, being athletes at this point in your career at pretty high levels, 
how much do you help each other out, bounce things off each other, just beyond a regular brother-to-brother -brother relationship? Yeah, it's, it's definitely pretty special. I talk to him pretty frequently. Um, and he was, uh, he lived with the host family out in uh, York this year, so I barely got to see him. I saw him for like a week over Christmas break. So it's, it's, it's definitely tough, you know, being away from home. He's, he's been away from home since he's been like 15. So <clears throat> I can only imagine what he's going through too. So definitely just trying to keep that uh, relationship with him tight. Um, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I, I enjoy watching him play hockey and succeeding more than anything. And you feel like you guys both have similar big league dreams, him on the hockey side and you on the, on the baseball side? For sure. Uh, you know, everybody when they're a little kid, you know, you ask them, what do you want to do when you grow up? And in our household, it was always, well, I'm going to be a baseball player, I'm going to be a hockey player. And we, you know, obviously we, uh, education is very important. My mom's a teacher. Um, so we had to make sure our grades were up too, but uh, definitely have aspirations of playing professional sports. And I want to go back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier. You didn't catch until your senior year of high school. So w were you recruited as a catcher? Yes. Or so how, 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 how did that kind of work out with you becoming a catcher so late in the game? I shouldn't say I wasn't a catcher to my senior year of high school. I wasn't a full-time catcher. Okay. So when I played you know, the whole showcase circuit kind of stuff. My, after my sophomore year of high school and junior year, uh, I caught. But then when I went back to high school, because my buddy Ryan Hogan, who is a catcher at St. John's right now, he caught for high school. So once he left, I was kind of the, the catcher my senior year. So I was an outfielder. Um, you know, the body kind of got a little less abused. Um, so it was fun. I got, to, I got to play outfield. I got to catch some. I played a little shortstop before that. So... Definitely playing multiple positions, I think, helped me a lot, up too. You think it's helping the knees that you didn't catch every inning for your entire high school career, yeah, too? for sure, for sure. So we get to this year, and speaking of the knees, they've been beaten up a little bit probably over the last three weeks having double headers. But you guys have been able to win two of those three series on the road, both those series in the Big Ten, as we head to Penn State this weekend for another road Big Ten series. And it's been an interesting ride in Big Ten play for you guys so far this season, and it's been an up-and-down whole season. I mean, 20 and 21, 6 and 6 in the Big Ten, yep. you know, right around 500 all year. And But you guys, at the moment, set up much better than last year just to, to get to that first goal, which is maybe this is not a team that's going to get an out large bid to the NCAA tournament, but get yourself to Omaha for the Big Ten tournament. Anything can happen. So mm -hmm. do you feel that on this team this year, being on the team last year, you guys are just – set up better and, and, and maybe ready for these series a little bit more and ready to get yourself back to the Big Ten tournament. Yeah, for sure. I think we're very battle-tested. I think we've played, even the games that we lose are, are very close games, you know, except for the Indiana series where we kind of got blown out of the water. A lot of the games that we've been in have been extremely close, um, whereas last year we didn't play nearly as many close games, if I remember correctly. Um, and I think that goes a long way, especially now where we're in the, in the, in the key part of the season where, where you're going to be in a lot of tight, close games. Um, I think that's definitely going to be a lot more benef beneficial for us. Uh, I think we've got a really tough group of guys on the team. I really do. Um, I'm really confident moving forward we're going to be we're in a really good spot. I mean, we've got, uh, you know, I think three of the next four series are at home, if I'm correct. Um, so I think we're in a, in a really good spot uh, to make a little bit of a run here. And, you know, going forward this season, obviously you guys have goals to get back to that Big Ten tournament where you didn't get to last year. But looking at it from two angles, one, you're looking forward to continuing to win this season as go as far as you can. But also, I mean, as a sophomore on most teams, you'd be one of the younger guys. But as a sophomore captain on this very young team, you're almost one of the veteran guys. Yeah. Do, is there an extra level of excitement knowing 
you guys are getting some big wins now, and there's all these freshmen who are only going to get better as Absolutely. you guys go on. You know, that's something that uh, me and the coaching staff and a lot of the younger guys talk about a lot. You know, we go on the road and we're playing teams like Northwestern, Ohio State, uh, even VCU. Like, all these teams are really experienced, junior, senior, heavy upperclassmen, uh, all in their lineup. And, you know, our lineups, except for T. Wright and A.J., uh, we get a lot of young guys, and I think that's – extremely valuable moving forward um, the more experience the young guys get I think it's only going to be more beneficial for us moving forward uh, not only for this year but like you said for the future too uh, you know you got Maryland's getting better and better recruiting classes coming in so the young guys getting experience is only going to help them down the road well Justin thank you so much for coming on the podcast this week a fellow Baltimore Redbird one of the members of the final Baltimore Redbirds yes, team a championship team this summer which you mentioned a couple of times, but thanks so much for coming on the pod with us this week. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. And again, our thanks to Terp sophomore catcher Justin Vogt for joining us on the podcast this week and for the first time in his career here on the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. Of course, Vote the bat starting to wake up a little bit. He's up over the Mendoza line hitting 208 on the season in 37 starts. Vote has six homers, 22 RBIs, and eight doubles this year. Of course, the strikeouts have been an issue again this season, 52 Ks in 37 games to just 18 walks. But he, in the middle of the season, had cut them down a little bit. And as he starts to hit more and more, the strikeouts, even if they are high, of course, become less of a problem for him. But as a starting catcher for this team and really by far the starting catcher. The Terps don't have a great option behind him defensively, so he's kind of the guy. And as your catcher back there that you want to play stellar defense, can't receive good pitches, throw runners out, you really don't need a lot from the bat, but the fact that he gives this team six homers and could be on his way to a double-digit home run season is obviously huge for the Terps. And if he can get the bat going even more, that's obviously just another addition this Maryland lineup which is already firing on all cylinders obviously despite losing two out of three over the weekend to Ohio State the Terps scored a combined 23 runs in the first two games of that series losing one of them but the offense hasn't been the issue the last couple of weeks and hopefully the offense can continue it this weekend as the Terps travel to Happy Valley to take on the Penn State Nittany Lions now this Penn State team has been a pretty interesting team so far this season. You look at the record, they're 18 and 18. So it would seem they're having a similar season to the Terps who are 20 and 21, but that's not the case in conference play. Penn State 1 and 13 in the Big 10 right now, sitting in dead last place. But it's not like they haven't been playing any close games. Penn State is not getting blown out at all really by anybody this season. Seemingly all of their games are decided by one or two runs. If you look back at last weekend, Penn State traveled to Illinois. They were swept in a three-game series in Champaign, but lost every game by just one run. Lost 2-1 to one in 10 innings on Friday night, lost 7-6 to six on Saturday, and then 4-3 to three on Sunday. And that's pretty much how all of their series have gone. You go back to the weekend before against Nebraska, two two-run losses and one one-run loss. So they've played a lot of close games this season. They've been pretty unlucky. The games haven't gone their way. But if just one or two breaks go the way of Penn State, 
they could really start to turn this season around. However, at already 13 losses in the Big Ten, it's going to take a huge push. I mean, you really can't get into the Big Ten tournament with a record, it seems like, worse than about 11-13, and 13, maybe 10-14 and 14 on a down year. So Penn State would have to turn it on and almost go unbeaten down the stretch to make it to Omaha this season. But to talk about the Penn State Nittany Lions, we again bring in one of the experts. He covers the team for the Daily Collegian, the student newspaper up in Happy Valley. So we thank Matthew Knob, who joins us this week to talk Penn State baseball and break down the three games set this weekend up in State College. And Matthew Knob of the Daily Collegian joins us to talk some Penn State baseball. Matthew, thanks so much for taking some time this week to come on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. So, obviously we want to get to the Nittany Lions here, 18-18, and 18, um, but the overall record a little different than the conference record, 1-13 in the Big Ten. And really for Penn State, you look at 1-13, and, and you maybe feel like without watching any games this season, you know, wow, that's a bottom feeder, that's, that's the worst team in the Big Ten. But when you look a little closer – this team's been in every single conference game. So what's kind of been the difference that's made them lose all these one and two run games and, and be one and 13 in big 10 play? Well, uh, to be honest, I think that's the million dollar question that everybody who covers the team or plays with the team, surrounds the team is asking. I, I think, I think it's a, a mixture of things. You got to look at the hitting. It's just, in the conference games, they're averaging, I don't have the exact numbers anymore because obviously they played uh, last night against Lafayette, but they're averaging a substantially less amount of runs per game against Big Ten opponents than they are in non-conference games. And that's, I think, where you see the biggest discrepancy between conference and non-conference. Obviously, like you said, they're 1-13 in Big Ten. So I think it really just comes down to those later innings. They just uh, can't find any timely hitting. And it's it's been killing them. Obviously, you mentioned the one-run losses. Uh, they had three one-run losses against Illinois, and then one the previous weekend against Nebraska. So I think it's I think it's mostly timely hitting a little bit uh, bull, bullpen pitching as well. The bullpen been kind of inconsistent here or there. They're, they've started to uh, settle down here in these last couple of games, but inconsistent a little bit. And I wanted to. You mentioned the Illinois series last weekend in Champaign, and that that you know that's a good Illinois team. It's a tough place to play. And Maryland early in the season took two of three there, and that's probably the Terps' best conference series win this year. And you look at Penn State, and they lose three one-run games, and seemingly had a chance to win all three. Does it seem like you know the, all these one-run losses are becoming somewhat detrimental to the team, and you know kind of breaking the spirits at all just they've been so close so many times to get big wins and haven't come up with them yeah i think so maybe subconsciously even but uh listen to coach cooper's most impressed conferences against uh illinois you could tell there was a little bit different tone i mean like he, he said you know teams playing as hard as they can the guys are trying as hard as they can and they're just coming up one run short three times in a row and i think by Sunday afternoon, three to four, uh, that was just like you know the nail in the coffin, like really. But I think it, I think it does affect them. But I don't think it's, I don't think the team has given up just because they've lost a lot of games. I think they're still playing hard, uh, but even subconsciously, I think it affects them a little bit. 
and obviously it's going to be important for them to keep playing hard. I mean, if they can turn these one-run losses into one-run wins down the stretch, still a chance to maybe sneak in to the back end of the Big Ten tournament. But I want to get to the Penn State offense, which you said has been such a discrepancy between the conference play and the non-conference play. And you look at the stats, and you know the guy in this offense has been Jordan Bowersox, and he's had such a little bit of an up and down career, but a good career at Penn State, and and you know he's kind of finishing it off with a great season so far. Yeah, he's just been Mr. Reliable, Mr. Consistent all season. Last night he just ended his, I believe it was 16 game hitting streak. Uh, he went out for four last night, but yeah, he's just he's certainly Penn State's. Uh, most polished uh, hitter. He steps in the batter's box. He's very experienced. He's got the patience. If he is struggling on a particular night, he'll try to bunt uh, to get it to get on, and that sometimes works. Um, works. I mean, he's got the speed. Um, he's also a great locker room guy as that as that veteran helped a lot of the younger uh, players, both outfielders and other players. So yeah, I mean, he's kind of the bell cow of Penn State baseball. And Bowersox hitting 336 on the season, and there's no other Penn State player who started more than 20 games who's hitting over 260 this year. And so after Bowersox, when this offense does produce, who does that production come from this season? Uh, well, it's a good question. It's kind of been a question mark. They've, a couple guys have had up and down seasons, but I think that's been Penn State's biggest problem is they're only getting offensive production. Uh, from a couple guys, and that's sort of hampering them, especially late in the game when said player or Jordan Powersox isn't up to bat uh, every single time. Justin Williams has really uh, developed into, he's first of all, he's a good third baseman with a cannon of an arm over at the hot corner, but he's developed into a nice power hitter. He actually had a home run last night uh, for his third of the season. He has sort of worked his way into the starting lineup. He didn't. Um, he didn't even play in any of the games uh, those first couple weeks when they were down in North Carolina and Florida. But then once they came back here to PA, started playing a couple of midweek games, he found his way in the lineup, and now he's sort of become that everyday third baseman taking spots from uh, Connor Clayman. So, yeah, he's developed into a nice player. Matt Kippenhammer, obviously, he's a dual-sport athlete. Uh, also plays on the football team, but he's not playing football. Uh, he didn't participate in any spring uh, practice this spring. He started off hot, but he's sort of since cooled down. But it's really, you get past Bowersox and uh, Justin Williams, and it's kind of, it's inconsistent. It's spotty all over the place. Um, I know guys like Chase Abranti and Ryan Sloniger, guys that are, and Parker Hendershot, guys that are usually really consistent on offense just aren't having the seasons that uh, they envisioned and the coaching staff envisioned. So offense inconsistent once you get down uh, down the line up a little bit. And despite that inconsistency on offense, this Penn State team, they won a lot of non-conference games, and they've been right there in a lot of conference games because of this starting pitching, it seems like. And that starts with Dante Biasi, who is having a great season. And, I mean, He's looking like one of the best Friday night starters in the Big Ten right now. Yeah, Dante has really turned up the heat this season. I, I mean, the difference between last year and this year for Dante Biagi is just—it's like night and day. I think last season uh, he showed some flashes of the potential, but he's three about three years removed from Tommy John surgery, 
which he had in high school, and then he took a, a medical redshirt here year, his first year here. So uh, he's slowly getting back into it, but now it seems like he's 100% back. And, I mean, he's been absolutely dominant on Friday nights. I can't name too many other guys that have, that I've seen pitch against Penn State. Uh, Matt Waldron and Max Meyer, two guys that come to mind that are comparable to Dante, but I think he's one of the, call me biased maybe, but I think he's one of the, the best pitchers in the Big Ten. I mean, the stats back it up, a 175 ERA and 10 starts this year. He struck out 79 batters and walked just 26 in about 57 innings. And he's been great on Fridays and is giving Penn State a chance to win and match up with every other Friday night starter in the Big Ten. And then you look beyond him on the weekend, and it seems to be that Eric Mock has come in, and he's had a very nice season, and Bailey Dees as well has had a nice year. And those Saturday-Sunday guys although they don't have the numbers Biasi has, it seems like they've been pitching very well on Saturday and Sunday as well. Yeah, Penn State's entire starting rotation has really uh, made an improvement. Significant, all three of them have made significant improvements compared to last year. I mean, and they're getting consistent outings. Not always the longest outing, um, especially for Mock and Dees. They don't always go longer into the games. But, I mean, like we talked about earlier with the one-run losses, when they leave, when they leave the game in the fifth or sixth inning, uh, Penn State's always in it. They sometimes are even leading. So the one thirteen record is not. You can't really blame it on starting pitching at all because every time those guys leave the game, Penn State is in the game. So a lot of there's been a lot of no decisions for the uh, starters. But yeah, all three of them have pitched very well this season. Eric Mock with a 3.55 ERA, Bailey Dees with a 4.00 ERA. And I know Dees uh, did not make his start against Illinois. Kyle Verbitsky made the start. Will Dees be back in there, if you know, this weekend against the Terps? Yeah, my understanding is uh, my understanding is that he is. I don't. It was something injury related that kept him out of that Illinois uh, game. Uh, you mentioned he was really late scratched. So Kyle Verbitsky made the emergency start. Uh, Dees was actually supposed to pitch last night against Lafayette, but because Penn State's Tuesday night game against West Virginia uh, got rained out, they moved Connor Larkin to the starter for last night's game, and Dees never ended up even coming to the game. So my understanding is uh, they said that these will go this weekend. I don't know if it'll be on Saturday or Sunday. They've kind of been mixing it up between Mock and Dees uh, throughout the season as far as Saturday Sunday. But my understanding is he will pitch. So it looks like the Terps will see the left-hander Biasi on Friday and then the right-handers Mock and Dees. Some combination Saturday and Sunday. But as you said, you know, those latter two guys, Mock and Dees, have been, you know, going five or six innings. And then you get into this Penn State bullpen and – Mason Malott has been phenomenal this season, and he had a phenomenal outing against Illinois last week, and he seems to be the guy in the bullpen, but do they have a lot of answers before they get to Malott? Well, what Penn State's been doing recently is uh, Mason Malott's been throwing a lot, for one. Um, he's made more appearances than any other Penn State pitcher this season, but he usually follows Biasi, and those two... Usually, between the two of them, they usually throw combined for the complete game on Fridays, and then they don't usually throw them on Saturdays. Sometimes he pitches a little bit on Sundays. But um, so you get into the Saturday and Sunday games, Penn State digging into the bullpen a little bit farther. 
Uh, Tyler Shingledecker's a freshman. He's shown uh, some great promise this season, and I think he's really improved. Um, 3.6 ERA right now. Uh, he actually pitched last night and showed him a lot against Lafayette. Interesting strategy um, from Coach Cooper to pitch the arguably two best bullpen guys on a Wednesday night. But uh, he's sort of filled in that number two spot in the bullpen, I would say. Cooper uh, relies on him pretty heavily as a lefty out of the pen. And then Tal Burbitsky, uh sophomore, has been coming in pretty often as well. He's got a little bit higher ERA and struggled at times. But uh, he, he started to get down to the bottom of the bullpen, and I think that's when the question marks really – they really start to pop up. I mean, after Verbitsky, um, Connor Larkin, I should also mention, he's kind of a half starter, half uh, reliever at this point. He made four starts and six relief appearances. He, he, was, he started last night through six innings, but he comes out of the bullpen uh, on weekends once in a while. And how much, you know, Maryland's had some of the same issues with you know, not knowing who they're going to get outs from sometimes from the bullpen. How much do you think that plays in, you know, because a lot of people when they see one-run losses, their first thought goes to the bullpen is blowing the game. How much is that true for Penn State this season? Um, well, I don't have the exact numbers, but I can say the the starters are, are earning a lot of no decisions. So that means the decisions are falling on the shoulders of the bullpen uh, to some degree. So I wouldn't say they're blowing the games. Um, they just seem to be responsible uh, for the results. In some cases, yeah, they have blown the game late in the inning or late in the later innings. Um, but I, I, as a whole, I'd say the pitching staff uh, has been pretty solid for Penn State. And I don't, you know, I wouldn't say that they're the reason they're losing all these one run games. I really think it falls on the offense. Uh, there's just not enough run support for a lot of these guys. And so looking forward to this weekend, Maryland and Penn State meeting for the first time since 2017. And if the statistics continue, we'll probably see three close games up there in State College this weekend. So looking at this Penn State team, you know, what, what would you say is the one key for them this weekend to maybe turn some one-run losses into some one-run wins and try and win their first series in the conference this year? Well, I actually haven't mentioned this yet. I think it really comes down to defense. Penn State's been struggling with um, errors, and you pose the question that is the bullpen blowing a lot of these games? Uh, the bullpen is getting tapped uh, with these losses, but it's really because they're allowing unearned runs because the defense is committing a slew of errors behind them. So I think that's got to be, for me, the key. Penn State's got to clean up on defense. We've been saying it all season long, and they have cleaned it out. Last night they committed two errors, uh, allowed Lafayette to score one unearned run, and then uh, Leopards had a chance to tie the game in the ninth inning. So the game, you know, if that runner would have scored, the game would have gone to extra innings, and you could have looked back and said, well, here, look at this unearned run that they allowed in the seventh inning that led us to this tie game. So they got to clean it up on defense. I think that that hurts the pitching substantially. These unearned runs are just are killing them. It's a big reason they're losing these one-run games. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for taking some time out of your schedule to join us this week on the podcast and break down some Penn State baseball. Yeah, 
Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Our thanks again to Matthew for joining us here on the podcast this week to break down some Penn State baseball. Again, this Nittany Lions team, 18-18, and 1-13 and in the Big Ten. They are coming off of a midweek victory this week. They won 3-2 to two against Lafayette in University Park, Pennsylvania. They also had a midweek game canceled against West Virginia. But they did lose three in Champaign last weekend against Illinois. And again, all three one-run games. And the stat is just wild. Penn State has played 14 one-run games this season. Seven of them in non-conference play and seven of them in conference play. Penn State in non-conference play in these seven one-run games, a perfect 7-0. and In conference play, 0-7 in games decided by one run. So maybe the bullpen not getting it done, or maybe it's just been some bad luck for this Penn State team in Big Ten play. But either way, the one-run games have not gone their way. And we'll see if one-run games and close games continue for Penn State this weekend against the Maryland Terrapins and of course this Penn State team the reason they're even in these one run games it seems is that starting pitching is pretty good and pretty solid and we'll have to see what the Terps starting pitching looks like it feels like it will still be Parsons Thompson and Labonte but with Tyler Blome maybe not 100% back but somewhat back we'll see how he factors in as well this weekend for the Terps but it will be three games Friday Saturday Sunday at least that's what the schedule says however for the last three weeks the Terps have played a double header on one of the days of the weekend because of rain there is rain in the forecast again this weekend looks like Friday and Sunday there's a chance of rain up at Penn State but right now the schedule Friday night 6 30 p.m. Terps pregame starts at six o'clock You'll see Hunter Parsons against Dante Biasi in the pitching matchup in that one. Then Saturday, it's at 2 o'clock for the first pitch, 1.30 for the Terps pregame. And then Sunday, the series finale at 1 o'clock, 12.30 for Terps pregame. And the Terps, it's going to be a big series this weekend against a team that's 1-13. And I know Penn State is better than their Big Ten record says, but for the Terps, it's 6-6 six and six in the Big Ten. And with three tough series coming up after Penn State to end the season, it seems like it would be a big time for Maryland to try and get a sweep, get to 9-6 and six in the Big Ten, which would position them very well to get back to the Big Ten tournament in Omaha for the first time since 2017. So we'd like to thank all of our guests this week, including... Terps sophomore catcher Justin Vogt, who joined us for a nice conversation, and then Matthew Knob of the Daily Collegian to talk some Penn State baseball. And of course, for my partner Zach Solon and our entire Maryland Baseball Network crew, I'm your host Connor Newcomb saying thank you for listening to episode number 66 of the Maryland Baseball Network podcast. We hope you liked it, and we hope you tune in again this weekend for three games up in State College, PA, as the Terps take on Penn State. And, of course, you can hear all the action right here on the Maryland Baseball Network.